Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is, I know it's been a while. I'm going ahead and mashing up the rest of the interview that I had with Andrew Jasko and just throwing it into one big episode. Uh, Sorry, it's been a couple weeks. I've been really busy. I started school, got a lot of changes with the podcast going on, but I'm really excited for next week. We're going to be announcing some new stuff. So everyone stay tuned for that and enjoy this episode of Pilgrims and Prodigals. suffering in and of itself so having this journey view and the other thing i want to emphasize is psychotherapy okay or counseling or finding a relationship a long-term relationship with a helping professional who you feel a connection with who understands you and you're confident can can help you see i i've personally been thinking about that my for for myself um because, you know, I've just been going through a lot with the whole, you know, dissecting and deconstructing religion and, you know, all of that. So it is daunting. And not only that, but I'm kind of, um, you could say obsessive. <laughs> so like when I focus on something, all of my energy goes into that. So, you know, I'm looking into this. I'm constantly watching, you know, atheist versus theist debates. And I'm looking up different theories of like why we're here and like all this different stuff. And, you know, when I, when I, when I put the time into studying something, I really go into it. So, you know, that, that can take a toll on you mentally. But all that to say that I myself have been, you know, taking in that consideration of finding a therapist or something like that around me because, you know, I have my friends and people around me, but it, I think, like you said, it, it it does the mind good to have a professional, someone who, you know, knows how the brain works and how, you know, how to process thoughts and stuff like that. So I think you're right about that. Yes. And, and this is part of the idea of committing to the journey, too. I think a lot of people don't want to commit to therapy. Uh, because it it can seem like a long process. But what we end up doing then is we try all these different things. We try quick fixes and just end up rebounding and and not going anywhere and spending more time. So I'd say like, you know, what if a year or a couple years in therapy is what you actually need to heal? And these, these are issues that affect us in the deepest ways. I mean, we have been psychologically abused. We've been often told to completely repress our sexuality and to police our thoughts constantly and have pervasive guilt. So these are deep issues and and they require, I think, some level of, of insight that's outside of us. And the therapy process is, it's a process. And I think a lot of times people are looking for like, a step guide or a template or a solution. You know, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I will heal from my religious trauma. I find this over and over again. Tell me what to do. And I understand that impulse because we want to get better, right? And we want to know the answer. But the thing about how healing works, it's very counterintuitive. Uh, Like we have, I like to call it 
an internal healer. We all have an inner healing mechanism, kind of like the way the body heals when you're sick. Yeah. There are these mechanisms, and sometimes a surgeon needs to go in and remove blockages, but it's actually your body that knows how to heal itself, and we're working with that. So it's a matter of these processes and patterns come up within the context of that relationship, and the relational space it provides an empathetic, nurturing, loving, healing space where the patterns that you learned in childhood, say, of relating to people in an unhealthy way or of, of basing your life around fear, those will show up in the therapy setting and uh, or the traumas and in the way you talk about your experience. That will start to show up and you'll treat the therapist kind of like the way you've patterned maybe unhealthy relationships yeah. on – and these things will come up and and we work with them and they start to unwind and we and we work through the blockages and then we start to experience being loved and seen in these experiences and, yeah, and, uh, I, and kind of reworking it. I like that because it's actually going through and processing who you are and your thoughts and your experiences that you've been through with the whole church thing and really – going through everything and going through all the aspects of your life in a real honest way. I think religion, uh, specifically like with charismatic church, that was our syndrome that we went through. It gives you almost like an aspect of that. Um, almost like a, uh, I want to say specifically with like charismatic, um, Holy spirit, um, type things. It's almost like you really feel like something's happening, but at the same time, like it could have, it could just be a mind trick. And with a, I feel like with therapy, it's like you are, you're delving deep inside yourself. You're figuring out who you are at the core of yourself instead of um, like we were talking about meditation earlier, the differences between like Christian meditation and regular meditation where, you know, Christian meditation is like, you know, focusing on the scripture and praying it over myself and making myself believe like you're an awesome man of God. You are full of power and all this stuff as, as opposed to actual meditation, which is actually just looking in yourself and like, who am I? How do I process this? What am I? you know, whatever, what are my thoughts and stuff. So, um, I think with, with therapy, it, it's a very good thing because it's not, you know, you're not just, you're not telling yourself who you are. And I don't know if any of this makes sense to you, but it's just a thought I had. You're not telling yourself who you are. You're figuring out who you are. Yes. And those techniques that you're mentioning of, say, contemplating and meditating on Scripture or praying, really what that is is a form of emotional bypassing. Yeah. You're not acknowledging what you actually believe, what's your actual truth, and you're, you're repeating some lifeless mantra that's kind of a lie in a way uh, because it's not how you actually feel. And there's, a, there's an extent to which this works, and I'm all for shifting our emotional states uh, and focusing on the positive and being grateful. But 
those emotions are there for a reason because they're trying to get us to pay attention to an yes. emotional truth, to a wounding. And if we keep ignoring them and stuffing them through spiritual disciplines, which is what the church tells us to do, when you're emotionally distressed, it tells you pray, try harder, be better, go to church more, be more accountable, serve more, do more good works. And what that is, is a way of ignoring and not loving ourselves because we're hurting and that that functions like a drug. It's a drug of of spiritual discipline. Yeah. What, what we're doing is when when we have these unpleasant emotions, we try to stuff them out of consciousness because they're unpleasant or because we're told they're sinful or dangerous by using these tools, and they come up. The emotions work themselves out in our lives in unhealthy ways anyway, yeah. because it doesn't work to try to stuff your emotions. So. We got to deal with them, and therapy is a great place to do that. And also, this this oper- this time in our lives of uh, we're kind of forced to rebuild ourselves. Like a lot of times, we just have the ground ripped out from under us, and this is an opportunity to restart. So it's given to you. You're there, whether you like it or not. Take advantage of it. Not many people ever get the opportunity to even become aware of the the dogmatic systems of oppression that they're in. And so so now that we're here, let's do it. Let's rebuild ourselves the right way. Yeah. No, I that kudos to all that. I mean, I think that's really good stuff. Um like you were talking about uh you know coping mechanisms in church and stuff like that. It's kind of like the same aspect like someone would take on alcoholism because they don't know how to deal with their depression or you know a dad who uh is a workaholic because he's got problems at home and doesn't know how to deal with it and his wife's not happy or his kids are not good or i I don't know like it's almost like a coping mechanism it it feels like like you're trying to convince yourself no i am not depressed i am not this i am not that uh, this is who I am. I am the man of God. And you get kind of like a like a pseudo strength from that, you know, like as long as you really believe it and you keep that enthusiasm up, you really believe it and you're good. But the moment that rug is pulled out from under you and you're really processing like, I never dealt with this. I never actually dealt with these issues in my life. They, I just, uh, like you were saying before, like you just suppress it. And you never really deal with the real issues that are going on in your life. And I feel like that's where a lot of people are right now with this whole ex-evangelical movement, which is really why the main reason I wanted you on this podcast. Because, you know, the issue we have is, you know, I feel like a lot of people aren't properly, and I don't say this to any disregard for anybody or any offense to anybody, Um, That's the last thing I want to do on the podcast. Um, But I see a lot of stuff going on on Twitter and Facebook and social medias and all these people banding together. And it's really good that these people are coming together. But at the same time, I see issues because I don't see people properly dealing with these things that are going on in their lives. And I can't say they aren't because, sorry, I worked all day kind of tired, but, um, I can't say they aren't because I don't know them personally, but 
you know, based off stuff I see on social media and stuff like that. I just see a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of hostility. And, you know, maybe it's because people never had the, the time to actually process all this stuff going on in their psyche. You know, that everything is so repressed from church, they never had the possibility to actually work through what's going on in their head. And I think that's a lot of what you offer and a lot of what, you know, other people offer that that's really good. And that's something I feel like we need to focus more on. Yes. And I think this is also an issue of awareness and psychoeducation. Just in general, there's not a lot of knowledge out there on the value of a therapy and of doing deep internal healing work. I think a lot of people tend to avoid therapy because they're afraid of dealing with the emotions that might come up and the pain of it. And that's a real thing, and I understand that. But at the same time, recognize you're already going through this. There's no avoiding it. And it's more painful to prolong the pain that's happening to you and that you're acting out on unconsciously uh, or, or lashing out. And and there's some validity to anger and to voicing that. But, but like you're saying, this staying stuck in unwellness and unhealth, there's a better way to go. And, and the healing process brings up pain, but it's just so nice to not be dominated by pain pain and emotions and memories and it's really it works this stuff works and no one is is too broken to be healed Uh, you know there are treatments out there there's tons of study uh, for some of the most difficult cases we're we're all humans and we we can all heal we all have that within ourselves so i really encourage people to sign up for the process and I, i really don't think there's a way of getting some of these things outside of the therapy relationship honestly if there was another way i mean there are other good modes of healing which we'll get into if there was another way i'd i'd recommend it it's it's not just because this is my field uh, just to do that kind of depth personal work and i know it can be ex- expensive and hard to afford but i guess i'd say like this is one of for anyone who's left this is a foundational life issue for you that we just got to deal with it at some point. So trying to frame it as a priority or almost a necessity, I, I think, might be a helpful thing. Yeah, and you know, as long as you're financially stable, I, I feel like it's it's worth paying for. I mean, you know, that's why I've been contemplating, you know, actually, you know, going to a therapist myself. You know, like because I, I feel like. I, I have been so back and forth since I started my journey because I'm trying to process all of this myself. You know, one week I'm like, all right, yeah, this is just this journey God's got me on. Next week I'm like, I don't know if God's real. The next week I'm like, dude, what if simulation theory is right? <laughs> you know, like I'm going yeah, through all these it's, different it's processes. <laughs> It's a process. And for those who can't afford it, I mean, there is Medicaid and welfare yeah. programs, and they exist for, for people who don't have the financial resources. There's no shame in taking advantage of that. So if you, I think if you prioritize this, you can find a way to get, get help that you need. That's kind of my point here. And that a lot of these processes are nonlinear. It's a nonlinear process of healing. It's a relational process of healing. The healing takes place within relationship. And uh, it's so it's not a simple kind of do X, Y, and Z. Like uh, it'd be great if it was. 
Yeah. So I that, mean, that's life what I have would to be say a... about the uh, the psychotherapy. Yeah, I mean, life would be really simple if everything was just X, Y, Z and just laid out and perfect. But, you know, the fact is we're very complex, intellectual, deep thinking beings. I mean, we are we are very complicated. And when our brains get messed up, it's very complicated figuring it back out. <laughs> and we're, uh, we're unaware of most of it. Yeah, we're, it, it works in a, a counterintuitive way, and it's it's like a lot of a lot of healing coping mechanism mechanisms that you mentioned can be like popping a pill. There's a place for a drug, but the drug doesn't heal you. You have to actually do the depth work, and it, it can be like cutting down weeds. Sometimes you need to cut down the weeds, but eventually you need to actually get the roots out. And, yeah. and that's that's what we're talking about. Yeah, and I feel like. You know, people coming out of that um, church or Christian situation, you know, they learn those coping mechanisms from church, you know. Tell yourself who you are, you know. If you're feeling depressed, no, you're not. Just tell yourself you're not, <laughs> you know. <laughs> precisely, precisely, <laughs> like the Word of Faith movement. And this is yeah. this is pop psychology, too. You hear the same things in a lot of spirituality movements and self-help a lot of this just kind of focus on the good, put yourself in a positive state, and this is very this can be very anti therapeutic if that's where you really stay and, and that if that's your main focus. Yeah. I mean there's an aspect of it that's that's helpful. I mean, because a lot of the times people can live in their own heads and that's that's not healthy to stay there. Um you know, I drive myself crazy sometimes just being in my thoughts too much and you know, I like uh, just this week, I, I don't know how I've never looked into it before, but I just figured out about the uh, Mandela effect. Have you ever heard of that? No. OK, so essentially there is a bunch of subtle changes that have happened in our universe is what these people say. Um like they say, like the Kit Kat bar used to have a dash between the Kit Kat. It doesn't anymore. Um, Smokey the Bear is actually it's now Smokey Bear instead of Smokey the Bear. And there are a bunch of these subtle differences that have happened, and they blame it on um, dimensions crossing or stuff like that. And it's a wild theory, it really is. But some of it really makes sense. And it's been driving me nuts like all week. But all that to say that sometimes we can live too much in our own heads. And sometimes we got to take a step back and say, whoa. Yes. And I think a lot of that is a function of the indoctrination that we've lived under too, which we can get to, the being stuck in our own heads yeah, and how take to it break away. That. Uh, that. That's definitely a major component of this system. Uh, so yes, there is a place for that, uh, but but the point is that is actually doing the depth work and yeah. addressing the roots, and in putting more attention in addressing the roots than in in just the symptoms and the patterns and behaviors, because when we address the core issues, we find that a lot of the the behaviors that we don't like work themselves out automatically. It's like if you try to, say, work on an eating disorder or binge eating or something just by trying to stop eating, making notes to yourself, 
you find it doesn't really work. Maybe it works occasionally, but when yeah. when we when we deal with say the depression or what's bothering us, then it's it stops being an issue. Uh, so we focus tend to focus so much on willpower, on doing, on trying harder and being better, and that's not really the source of true power and strength, which which comes from being, which comes from a, a yeah. state of having unhindered access to yourself. Exactly. I think what it comes down to is getting down to the core of like who you are. Now, how do you manage yourself? How do you be okay with who you are and learn how to, you know, manage your mind and stuff like that? And I don't know, you know, you're the professional here, but just based off the feel of the conversation, you know, I, I would, you know, it comes down to just I would say from a layman's perspective, I would say it just comes down to figuring out who you are and being okay with that. If you go through this whole journey and then come to the conclusion that you no longer believe in God anymore and that, you know, the whole time you were trying to make yourself believe something because you grew up in it or your friend group drew you into it or you genuinely like were ecstatic about it for a moment but then it fizzled out. It's like, it's okay. Wherever you end up in this journey, that's why our podcast is called Pilgrims and Prodigals. Wherever you gen end up in this journey, you are not a bad person, you know? So being who you are and focusing on, on doing and trying and willpower, this comes from fundamentalism or from the religious system. Uh, and I think that the biggest issue uh, of healing is the self-relationship, the relationship that I have to myself and to the parts of myself. Th that's where a lot of the destruction comes in. And this comes in from the ideas of shame and original sin, because it's saying being who you are is not good. You need to not be who you are. You need to change who you are. The core of yourself is untrustworthy. You are in, your nature is inclined towards evil and suffering and sin. Yeah. So because of sin and original sin, you can't trust your intuition. You have to rely on this outside source called the Holy Spirit or the Church of the Bible. Uh, you're, you can't trust your critical thinking. Uh, you can't trust your heart. The Bible says that the heart is is deceitful and wicked above all things. Above all things, yeah. Above all things. I mean, and for me, the heart of spirituality is trusting your heart. Is that your heart that you fundamentally desire good and wellness, especially when you you have your needs met and and well, feel that you can meet your needs. Yeah. So this is completely backwards. And 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 think about this, like. How warped and how backwards is this message that you're born sinful and, and born deserving punishment? I mean, every mother knows that her newborn child is, is good and beautiful, right? What mother upon giving birth says, look at this wicked thing that I produce. Yeah. I need to teach it to, that it's evil and not to trust itself. I mean, it's so <laughs> yeah, backwards. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, on the heart thing, there's a scripture that, you know, I used to hold – near and dear to myself and it was from proverbs 4 and it said guard your heart above all else for from it flows the wellsprings of life and i don't know man i think it, it's less about what you're letting into your heart and more about figuring out 
what's in there. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Tr- learning to trust yourself. Yeah. Uh, believe in yourself and be yourself, which means not being constrained by an outside uh, authority or, or being forced to conform to someone else's vision of what to do with your life or who to be. And so this this comes from the fundamentalist framework. So the conception of God is based on a an ancient idea of the king as an authoritarian ruler. God ruled, created the universe and dominates it for to be worshipped. He, he's essentially an ego monster yeah. or an egomaniac. Really, he's he's the embodiment of of divine narcissism. And this is because yeah. Yeah. people. People had kings in the ancient times when they thought, what's a ruler like? What did they have? They had generally tyrants who who tended to rule by fear and violence. And they tended to be in power because they were brutal. I mean, kings were not usually good. They didn't usually have the best interests of their subjects in mind. They wanted to be worshipped. They wanted power. And they wanted to maintain authority at all costs. So this is why in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, it's not love. It's fear. Yeah. Uh, it's it's and it's obedience. So God has this kingdom. Uh, he sets up Adam and Eve as vassal kings, ruling and dominating over creation. They're commanded to rule creation. Uh, when they disobey Him, He takes away uh, their life, and it's all about advancing this kingdom uh, in an imperialistic way. First of all, through the superior race of the people of God, who are chosen and commanded to kill the people around them. And then in the New Testament, we have God's kingdom now instituted through a form of spiritual slavery, where the divine ruler is now set up in the human heart, in the place of your own autonomy, in the place of your own free agency. The Great Commission is a kind of spiritual imperialism, recruiting soldiers to convert and bring all the nations under the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to worship him forever, culminating in national invasion with weapons of mass destruction in the book of Revelation, where everyone is either slaughtered or put in slavery for the purpose of of stoking this this person's ego. So it's a system of violent oppression and and fear. And it's not my point in all of this is is not is essentially that this doesn't benefit the people who are in it. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not about Well, I mean you. even God's even going into the Old Testament, you know, it, it's not just New Testament where God is accustomed to slavery. I mean, if you go into, you know, say Exodus 21, God gives a detailed description on like how to own slaves like in real life, not even in a spiritual aspect. So right. if we want to get into this narcissistic aspect of of slavery, I mean, it, you see it all over the Bible. And that's one thing that a lot of people try to cover up, but you cannot. You cannot cover up the fact that this God is supposedly okay with slavery from a physical to, you know, what you're describing, even in a spiritual sense, you know? Like, mm-hmm. yes, you're going to live forever in this kingdom, but based off based off all the knowledge we have from the book of revelation and daniel and all that stuff it's not necessarily going to be a free will it's going to be you know you're going to be doing what god wants you to do for eternity so I yes mean, so i don't know what we need 
in the world is is free, actualized human beings standing in their power, knowing who they are and living in their freedom. And that's how love happens and not through conformity or through road obedience to a system based on fear. Uh, that that maybe made sense in the Iron Age when we had no education or people didn't know any better. I mean, it was never good then, but we know better now. <laughs> it was and a means know- of survival. If you go back, if you study um, anthropology, and there's a couple um, anthropologists that I, f- that I follow, they have their own theories of where religion actually popped up. It's They have their theories that it is a tribalistic aspect of survival. People... You get these people grouped around a singularity idea, and they will tribe together for survival. Um, and what this guy believes, I don't know if it's actually true or not. I guess it's all hypothetical. It's theoretical. But he thinks that eventually man will evolve to a point where we we no longer need gods. And that will come to the uniform conclusion that, hey, we're humans. We live. One day we're going to die. And that's that's life. But for the time being, we live under a tribalistic kind of sense where we group together. And you see that. You see it in pop culture. You see it in social media. You see it on the news. You know, you've got, <laughs> you know, what your political views are depends on whether you watch CNN or Fox. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... I think we're really aware in general in society of some of the more explicit abuse that religion has perpetrated, like actual slavery, actual holy war. But I want to bring awareness to, the, in some ways, the more pernicious and subtle abuses where all of these things have been turned into metaphors and internalized, where now this imperialism is an imperialism of the heart. Uh, This violence is a violence to humanity. Uh, They... The abuse is is about abusive agency and life purpose. It's almost like a life purpose rape. Your life purpose is a cog in a wheel in a system. Instead of well, what are you actually passionate about? Like exactly, what actually makes sense for you? So there's a lot that goes under the authoritarianism. Uh, but I want to also talk about trauma. We often use the phrase religious trauma, and I love that phrase because. I think one of the things to realize after you've left this system is that you've been traumatized. Yeah. And that's a profound thing. Yeah, there's no way around it. It's a weighty thing. And so make space for to process that trauma. Uh, it's, It's something that impacts us deeply. And I think that even it's possible to understand... Judeo-Christian religion as a trauma response, in a way as an ideology that was formed out of trauma and that recreates the trauma it's based on. So this is a fascinating inquiry uh, that we can dive into if you want. No, go for it. I, I, I will say we did an episode, I think it was about 10 episodes ago, uh, it was called post-traumatic church syndrome. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. dive into it, man. Tell us, tell us about it. So, trauma. 
a lot of I, I think that Judeo-Christian religion can look like a severely traumatized indiv- individual trying to resolve his trauma in unhealthy ways. Mm-hmm. And trauma tries to resolve itself through reenactment. That that's how the psyche works. We have these trauma, these life experiences and events. And we replay them in our minds constantly or even create situations in real life to recreate the original traumatic situation. And the hope is that once we bring it into the present, there will be an opportunity to resolve it and to heal. That's what's trying to happen. So you see this with post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, where – A lot of times people who are in abusive relationships, they'll keep seeking out abusive relationships. And they even though they don't want to be abused again. But but we hear this over and over again. Why is that happening? Because on a subconscious level, they're actually trying to resolve the trauma and heal. And this also happens in PTSD, like war veterans or rape victims are flooded with these memories of the traumatic event that are terrible. They don't want to have them. uh, But it's an attempt that the psyche is trying to make them face it. But it, that is it, insane. I've never even thought of that. Yeah. So, so that's what's happening with, with post-traumatic stress syndrome and trauma. The trouble is, is that it's so painful for us to face is that we continue to disassociate and to reject ourselves and to stuff that part uh, of our lives. And that's what happened when we experience trauma uh, as a survival mechanism, we, we often disassociate. Uh, we, we lose contact with our experience or ourselves. And when we do that, we kind of cut part of ourselves off and we lose access to ourselves. Wow. Uh, and, and we have all kinds of anxiety that can result from the trauma and this, this whole reaction that the nervous system has in our bodies. Uh, you see it in traumatized animals a lot. They'll be shaking. They'll be afraid. Uh, yeah, like it, it, when my dog poops on the floor and I come home, he knows he's going to be in trouble. Yeah, right? <laughs> so so this is all a response, and it's a response that lives inside of us, deep inside of us, and uh, there's there's a way to address it. So uh, the, the Western religious enterprise can be seen as – a response to suffering and the immensity of human suffering and an existential inquiry into it. So humanity saw suffering all around them and they, they said, how can this be? Why is it happening? Who's to blame and who's going to be punished for it all? Yeah. And, and so in response, part of the reason God existed was to respond to the dilemma of human suffering. God was going to make things right. God was going to solve the problem of sin uh, and God is going to punish people. And so the idea of sin is in a set, is, is used as an explanation for, for the reason of suffering. The reason that suffering exists is because of sin and it be- continues to exist because people are sinful. So what this is is a blaming. It's a victim blaming. It's saying because there's bad in the world because it's my fault. Because I'm bad. Uh, so what we're doing when we say we have a sinful nature is we're reenacting the trauma of suffering through shame and self-punishment. And we're, we're constantly reminding ourselves of this suffering through prayer and confession for, for sin. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. A lot of what you're saying is really blowing my mind right now. Just with uh, 
trauma and like dude all of that stuff it's insane like how your brain works right like literally like like what you were saying about like you know a woman who will get back into abusive relationship even though she doesn't want to but her subconscious on a on a subconscious level is trying to solve it but her very own consciousness is the one is the thing getting in the way and we do that so often our subconscious is like maybe we don't even know it because right it's our subconscious and it's trying to it's trying to work itself out the brain i feel like the brain is constantly trying to make itself itself healthy but we're the ones that are getting in the way we're the ones that are like this doesn't feel right uh block it off (laughs) you know yeah exactly (laughs) that's my point about the inner healer uh we don't need an external healer to outsource our power we need to access our internal power our inner healer and to do that we have to get rid of blockages so when a traumatic event happens there's a sense of shock uh how can this be Uh, why and we try to one, one of the ways we try to deal with that is to to control it through our understanding. And that means finding fault or assigning blame. And, and we always we always feel at fault when when something traumatic has happened. You know, yeah. how could this be? It's my fault. I'm the one to blame. So a lot of times when when a veteran, when their friend dies in war, what they end up saying is, why did I survive? Why didn't yeah. I save them? It's all my fault. Because it, it's a shock and it it gives us a small comfort to under, to ha, to understand it even even if it's through blaming ourselves it feels safer than saying that the universe is a dangerous place where things don't make sense yeah well uh, you see it so, in, so, in like today's so not to cut you off but like in today's culture um especially is so dominated by uh this judeo-christian uh re- i don't want to say regiment like the like they're overtly bad i mean they're obviously trying to help but it's so dominated like you know, if you're dealing with depression, you're not really. If you're dealing, if you're struggling with sexuality, you're not really. You know, all these different things that people are going through, and it's like, no, that's not really who you are. You're a child of God. This is who God wants you to be. But really, they need to internalize all of that, is what you're saying, right? Well, what I'm saying in this context is that we internalize blame for the traumatic events we experience in order to give make sense of it of the unsensible okay and and to 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 put some understanding and get some comfort through understanding but when we blame ourselves or when we blame other people what we're doing is re-traumatizing ourselves and we're we're bringing that we're reenacting that trauma actually so that original suffering we're saying beating ourselves and flagellating ourselves and saying this is my fault i'm a sinner i'm suffering because i'm bad or uh, what religion also tends to do is is revenge is vengeance yeah is so saying it's not just that i'm at fault the bad people are at fault and we see this in the development of hell the idea of hell came into existence uh because of trauma and as out of a desire for revenge, the the Israelite people were being severely oppressed and dominated by foreign empires in the intertestamental period when the idea of hell really solidified the the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament writing, and the people were being brutalized by foreign empires. They were seeing their babies dashed to pieces before their eyes. They were being invaded, raped, and pillaged. So 
they imagine how can this be made right? Who is to blame? Who's at fault for this trauma? And so they imagine the worst possible punishment imaginable that that would be the only thing that could match the suffering they had endured, which was hell. The idea yeah. of hell, which is the the epitome of vengeance. That's what hell is. And it feeds on the energy of trauma. And it desperately wants to resolve trauma, but it creates more of it. It's a reenactment strategy. It's trying to resolve itself. They're blaming the other people or blaming the self. Uh, so th this whole religious impulse to solve suffering is a trauma reaction. And it's a miserable conflict, and it never solves anything. Um, and so a lot of this comes from resolving it. Is, it happens through non-judgment which the religious impulse tends to be about judgment about yeah. finding blame about containing this trauma thing uh but there's no such thing as fault ultimately like suffering is a fundamental reality of existence and unsafety is is a fact of the way the universe is oh yeah uh, yeah there, there's 100 i mean you see you know <laughs> i mean just in our world alone, I mean, we've seen extinctions happen. You know, I mean, look at that Jurassic period. A comet flying through the cosmos smacks into Earth. Bam, everything's dead. You know, and we see suffering, uh, you know, kids starving to death, you know, people dying from AIDS, you know, stuff like that. It just, it's there. And the the thing is, you can't you can't describe that on a biblical level that satisfies as well. And that's one of the biggest dilemmas with God, right? If he's, not to get off on a tangent, but if he is all-powerful, if he's, you know, can do anything he wants, why doesn't he solve world hunger? Why doesn't he cure cancer and AIDS and stuff like that? Why does he let all of these, you know, huge issues that are killing so many people, why does he let them just exist, you know? It's because yeah. they're just here. It's just human suffering, like you're saying. It's just a fact of nature it just is what it is. Yeah, and th that model doesn't make sense. Like you're saying, it, it doesn't have any real explanatory value for, for why the universe works the way it does. So suffering and unsafety are facts of the universe, and trying to tame them through understanding or through blaming other people is a response to trauma that creates more trauma. Uh, but love and connection are also fundamental to existence in the way the universe works. Uh, so the way to really deal with this is, is through acceptance and compassion, and which, which means accepting ourselves for all that we are in the way that we are, uh, and non-judgmental, compassionate awareness. So instead of burying this pain or judging ourselves or saying you're sinful, you're bad, it's being aware of our suffering and accepting us in our ugliest parts yeah. and the parts we don't like. And that's how we reintegrate the parts of ourselves we lost touch with when we disassociated from the pain of the original trauma. The way we reintegrate and resolve trauma is we bring these painful moments or experiences or, or parts of ourselves we don't like into awareness and we hold them in a space of accept acceptance, non-judgment and love. And when we apply non-judgmental compassion and awareness, we step outside the trauma cycle uh, entirely. 
And yeah. So that's part of how we heal. So that's a big overarching view of, of trauma there. But uh, yeah, yeah, we've got to we've got to be able to work through these issues that we've had leaving church, you know, like or even like what we think about God now or whatever it is. We've got to be able to look at those from a non-judgmental standpoint, because if you're looking at it from your strictly evangelical standpoint, or maybe you still interact with friends, you know, if you're listening and you have friends, you know, all your friends still go to your church that you left, or, you know, you have, you know, evangelical friends who will tell you that you're wrong for the way you're living now. You've got to be able to just digest who you are and just be honest with yourself is what you're saying, right? Yes, and accept the parts of yourself that are painful or that seem ugly or that maybe even you hate and and approach them from a place of empathy and compassion as if it was someone else who was abused or hurt Okay, and, and maybe not even you and just seeing like understanding and I understand why you acted that way. I understand that you were hurt and reintegrating these dissociated parts and that that's how healing happens and it, when when the reenactment occurs in the therapeutic context or in life, we, we face ourselves. Instead of running away, we face ourselves in those painful emotions and find resolution. So being that this is a traumatic system and we've experienced trauma, one of the first things we have – one of the first priorities is to try to establish a sense of safety, is to, okay. which can, can mean getting out of the traumatic environment. And that's not always a one-step process because a lot of people oh, are it still – yeah. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people are in these jo- are in jobs that are uh, so maybe they're ministers or, uh, or they, you an you know, family members and in churches. But as much as you can establish a sense of safety and I mean, some people stay in abusive environments, not because they have to, but because there's a sense of, of comfort in that. Yeah, um, even though it's something that hurt you more than anything in the world, you're used to it. Yes, and because we're afraid of isolation when we leave, yeah, which is a, a real thing. But, I mean, and the abusive partner provides a lot of needs, and, and the same is true for abusive uh, churches and religious contexts, is that they do meet our needs, but they do it in a way that manipulates and hurts us. Uh, so... We need to get some space where we can feel safe enough to grow, and sometimes that means leaving that religious context for a while, or you know maybe permanently, or just stepping outside of it. Um, but getting more of a sense of safety, and uh, there's isolation is a big thing for people who leave. Uh, I find people who I work with over and over again say. Like, I finally met someone who understands me. Almost like there's no one else in the world who's going through these issues, even though there are billions of people in religious systems in the world. Yeah. And so what that says to me is that it's a very isolating experience, uh, leaving religion. And, you know, you often have to give up a lot of relationships or a lot of comforts. And uh, so I think that when we come out is uh, trying to find other people who, who you feel understood by. Yeah, you know, maybe a therapist or some of this online community too. Really, anything you can to try to soften that isolation a little bit. Which is one of the things that I really love about the evangelical group. I know it's something I was kind of bashing at the beginning, but and there, look, I got to admit too, there's a lot of really amazing um, 
agnostics and atheists out there that I've been dialoguing with. I mean, people who have been, you know, talking to me, opening me up to new ideas and stuff like that. It's been really cool, man. I really like social media. There are some very good aspects to it. Yeah, there are some really great things out there. Some some of these online support groups. Uh, there's actually a group that I'm a part of called the Clergy Project. Have you heard of it? I have not. Cool. I, I just wanted to plug them a little bit. Yeah, so they are an organization, a, a private confidential support group for ministers or religious professionals who have left their religion but are still in the career or struggling with career transition because they need to feed their families and don't know how to get other jobs quite yet huh. or somewhere in that process. It really helped me with my transition. So that's a resource that's out there. And think about this too. There are there are religious leaders today in churches or or uh, Bible professors and missionaries who are no longer Christians but are working their jobs because they're afraid of coming out and they don't know how to make money. Yeah, and that is a problem when you get money involved with, you know, religion and morality and stuff like that. You know, it is an issue. It's a it's a big issue, and it's it's a challenging thing, and it's a process. So finding some of the support really, really helps. Um, as far as establishing a sense of safety, uh, I think embodiment practices can be really helpful too, because a lot of this trauma lives in our nervous system and our bodies is where we experience it. So really yoga is a great practice okay. uh, for releasing trauma. Uh, anyone, even though a lot of churches think it's evil, but they... <laughs> <laughs> That's so they, funny. But, they tend to think that about a lot of things that are powerfully yeah. healing and liberating. So, and that don't lead people to their doors. But I, I mean, yoga, it's, it's known as a process of, of, of stealing, of working through the body to still the mind. Uh, and okay. it, a, a lot of it helps with anxiety. It's one of the ho- most highly rated ways of dealing with anxiety and in, and finding release. There are other embodiment practices like dancing or exercise, but taking the body into account is a really good thing to hear. Yes, it, exactly. Uh, three things that I try to focus on is meditation, diet, and exercise. And those are because a lot of thing, a lot of times, like these mental problems that people are trying to work through with, uh, whether it's you know church or whatever, trying to you know cope with life in general right um we 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 think it's all in the mind but it's really not it has a lot to do with like how your body is processing things you know working out and sweating and watching what you're eating and you know meditating and clearing your mind and stuff like that and i'm not a professional but i know pretty much the basics of like i'm aware of the fact that it has more to do with what's in my head Yes. And meditation. I think everyone should meditate. Oh, yeah. I'm completely on board with you. I want to say this in a way to to former Christians or former religious people that is non-threatening and doesn't feel like another spiritual discipline or chore, which I had a lot of resistance to meditating at first because I was like, that sounds just like prayer or some spiritual thing that I have to do and I don't want to do it. And it's so different 
from prayer. It's almost the opposite. What meditation does is it allows us to start making choices, to stop reacting and start making real choices. Most of us spend 90 percent of our actions are reactions. They're not real choices. They're not consciously chosen because their minds dominate us and we're not aware of our thoughts. They happen so quickly. So when we meditate, we start to observe our thoughts and emotions and distance them and pause them. So in real life, when I meditate, I notice my mind and my life starting to slow down and I start to yep. notice my triggers. I start to notice my actions and I can gives me enough time and space to start to make conscious choices and to have a little more peace and not get stuck. And it also helps us to uh, distance ourselves from our emotions and, and thoughts. Realize that like, okay, I'm experiencing depression right now, but that depression isn't me. I'm 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 going to observe it and not fight it, but but just see what it is and 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 sit with it for a moment in meditation. Yeah. And acknowledge it. And what that mindfulness practice does is it allows us to not get stuck and to develop a different mm -hmm. relationship to our thoughts and emotions. Yeah, you can you can take a thought and you can ask yourself why why did I just think that? You know, what is and then once you're done kind of digesting that thought, all right, let's move on. Well, you know, what else is going on in here? You know, let me <laughs> just breathe and relax and, you know, let the mind do its thing. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, 100%. exactly. So, so it's really, really important, very life-changing uh, I really recommend it to everyone. I, I think we, we tend to all get so stuck in our minds and anxiety and, and in our emotions and really dominated by them. And it, it's a painful way to live. And so this is, is really, it's almost the opposite of prayer too, because we're not focusing on an outcome or a desire or asking anything. The focus of it is actually to be with the reality that you're in and find acceptance and create space through acceptance and non-judgment. So it's a practice of bringing non-judgmental awareness to everything. So when I have an emotion of, say, anger that's really unpleasant and uncomfortable, uh, usually our response is to try to stuff it through a, a drug reaction like, like prayer. Get rid of it. But with meditation, it's just saying, okay, I'm angry right now. That's interesting. And get curious about it. Exactly. Uh, and accept it. So it's a non-judgmental approach and when we do this, when we practice this non-judgmental awareness, we stop dissociating from our experience and learn to live in the moment and find that emotions have less power over us. We develop a different relationship with our life experiences. And that takes out half the suffering out of life because most suffering is in resistance. Is, is when, exactly. That's where the agonizing happens. When I'm, when I'm in pain and then I start saying, I'm in pain and screaming and trying to fight it. And that usually makes it worse. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, oh, what was I going to say? Um, just kind of working through those things. And uh, I think just acknowledging. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Lost my thought for a second. Acknowledging that, like, who we are is not bad. You are not wrong for feeling depressed. Like, no matter where you're at 
Like you are not inherently evil. And that's going back to your original point when you were talking about this original struggle, right? We are born into this into this world where we are evil. We are we come out of our mother's womb and we are inherently going destined for hell. I mean that that's the way it was taught in my church. Like you are destined for destruction until you make Jesus your Lord. You know, and we've got to get over that. We've got to learn that, all right, who I am is not evil. First thought, let's process that, and then let's work through this whole scenario, and let's find some healthiness at the end of it. Yeah, so this is the the destruction of the self-relationship, which takes place through the notion of sin. And this is how fundamentalism uh, takes root, is... It can be predatory. Either it, it preys on people's perception of inadequacy, uh, like like poverty or drug addiction, or it convinces people they have a problem, that the reason for their suffering is, is that they're sinful. So what it does is it, it, it breaks down the, the relationship to the self through shame. And shame is saying that you're bad, that something's wrong in your life because you're wrong. That's what shame is. It's exactly. an identity wounding. So there's the sin is soul wounding. It, it wounds us at a deep level where our souls are, are broken in a way. And uh, so because we, we are bad, uh, we lose our personal power and we give it away to an authoritarian system or, or to a savior, uh, to somebody, but that's, that's disempowering and disempowerment is, is a huge, huge issue. Uh, so when people leave religion, I think maybe the biggest issue they struggle with is finding personal power. Yeah. (laughs) Is, is learning how to trust ourselves and, and act again and make decisions. Well, I mean, when you are taught that all of your power comes from the spirit of God and then you detach from that, you know yeah it's 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 super intense and and we're also taught that it was the sin to lean on your own understanding and your strength that when you did act <laughs> on your own strength and and not for the purpose of glorifying god that that was sinful so learning to get our our power back uh, a lot of that comes just through practice but also working these things out we gain access to ourselves. We repair the self-relationship. Uh, we we practice self-love. So that that's one of the ways that we deal with the this broken self-relationship is through self-love. This is not a concept that's emphasized in the Bible, by the way, or in Christianity. The idea of loving yourself. Uh, it's it's it mostly comes. It's more emphasized in Eastern spiritualities. But what we have in Christianity. They call it unconditional love, but it's the essence of conditional love. It's love conditioned on obedience. The whole thing's about obedience, the obedience of faith. Yeah, it is. uh, About obeying the king. And like you only receive love as a side benefit of doing what the ruler says. And it's threatened to be taken away or punishment if you don't. So that's no, you're, you're an object in that. You're not someone who deserves love because of who you are. It's because of what you do and because of what you give. Uh, So, yeah. And and if you're not, and if you're not, if you're not appeasing that God, if you're not doing what he likes, then 
he doesn't love you anymore. And and that's that's the appeal I feel like of Eastern religion, especially when you look into um say like Confucianism and stuff like that, where it's all about yourself. It's about self loving, like you were saying, inner meditation, um understanding like I feel like uh the Eastern religions are probably the most realistic because they're based around the idea that, you know, man, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly know how to describe it. Um, it's based around the idea of going into your mind and figuring, understanding that you have good and bad. Um, I, I didn't want to just say yin yang and be cliche, but I don't really know how to describe it. <laughs> but uh, Eastern religion, yeah, a lot of it is based around that yin and the yang. Like, I totally, in my own personal life, believe that nobody is inherently good or evil. I believe we're all just people. Sometimes we make good decisions. Sometimes we make bad ones. And we've got to weigh those. We've got to learn ourselves. And we've got to make the best decisions we can as people. But know that they're... they're so we're going to make bad decisions in life too. It's just part of our nature. That's right. And Eastern spirituality or philosophy, I am almost hesitant to call it religion. There are religions, but I, I feel like uh, that can be triggering for people who came out of Western religion. And in yeah. some ways, it's almost the opposite of Western religion. A lot of it is very scientific in its approach, mm-hmm. where it's people for thousands of years sitting and meditating, observing emotional states and states of consciousness and saying, what do we conclude out of this? It can be very non-dogmatic and very yeah. personally experiential. So there's almost a, a really a scientific rigor to it and philosophy that is very non-supernatural. And uh, it's very different in a lot of ways. So it's worth exploring and not just dismissing all under the category of religion. I was shocked to see how different it was, and I was initially turned off and afraid of it too, uh, but I benefited a lot from it. And we're seeing a lot of Eastern thought come into mainstream psychology and just society in general in, in things like meditation and even our scientific understanding of consciousness. So there's a lot there, but it also kind of emphasizes the divinity of the self, which I love. So in, in the Western framework, God is something outside of you and superior to nature because he's supernatural. He's yeah. outside of it. He dominates it. So when we're in that dualistic framework, it's a separation-based mentality. It's us and them, good and bad. And it, it sets us in opposition to nature. Uh, but we're a part of nature. Uh, it's all one thing. And and, and there's this, this sacredness of, of human nature that if God is anything, God is you. I'm God. You're God. We're all God. I mean, we can think about that in a way that's not literal, right? Yeah. That, that well, I mean, we there's are, some people who would take that literal. Um, you can. If and, you get and into I'm not saying not to, simulation but, theory or, uh, you know, universalism, like we're all one um, conglomerate consciousness. Well, that's right. And I yeah. mean, reality does, the whole universe does function in some ways like a living organism. Exactly. And, and I mean, planetary systems and galaxies you could say have sex and reproduce and the everything is connected like a change in you on an atomic level produces a change in me so there is this inner web this web of connectivity and unity uh, underlying reality 
and in dualism is creates a false separation and and makes us approach reality through judging everything and, and even right and wrong on some level are constructs and they're relative to the perspective of the person so but but when we get this framework it we don't lose our sense of morality if anything it's it's more nuanced uh and okay. i think more free so yeah. but on the concept of self-love i like it, it can be hard for people to love themselves and stop judging themselves so much uh, so like one exercise you can do is is like write down a hundred things you like about yourself it's like simple things like that and you probably find you'll have difficulty after the first 20 yeah i was <laughs> i'm thinking about it and i'm like there's i don't know if i could come up with a list of 50 things i like about myself right right but but the juicy stuff is often after the first fifty. You start getting deeper. Yeah. Uh, but but there's just so much beauty to to everyone, and starting to to bring awareness to that. Um, and then uh, w- with with judgment, uh, a lot self judgment is a big issue uh, because we're taught to judge ourselves. Yeah. In the in the fundamentalist system. Uh, so what happens here is we struggle with hearing voices, the voice of God. Uh, God is a construct like a psychological implant or a surveillance mechanism or a thought police put inside our minds. Uh, it's almost like there's a part of us that becomes God, the judge, and we, we internalize a judge in ourselves through the religious system, and it's torture, and it's an obsessive-compulsive miserable way of thinking uh oh yeah so i mean it's almost like psychotic when you think about it like hey even if you are completely alone god's always watching you just so you know (laughs) no matter what you're doing yeah exactly he's even in your mind so even if you're thinking something he knows it he knows yes it's 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 so twisted yeah Uh, but so we have in in fundamentalism, not just fundamentalism, in the Bible, okay? Because people, I find, often love to blame everything on fundamentalism and forget, like, hey, you know, you progressive people have the same Bible, okay? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about it. But, uh, and you still promote a book with these ideologies uh, that you're blaming everybody for taking them literally when, you know, not kind of owning up to it. Like, well, yeah. what do you expect it's so, <laughs> written in there. <laughs> what do you expect people to do? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it's uh, there's much to say on that, but but it says in the Bible that it, God says, "I I the Lord search the heart and examine the mind to reward to pay back everyone according to what they've done," and we're told to to uh, take captive all of our thoughts for the obedience of Christ. So this says uh, what what we do here is we internalize a judge, this really brutal third voice in our heads uh, that demands perfectionism, slavish adherence at the, and total obedience to the level of all of our thoughts and desires and judgment of everything. We have to judge everything we think because it might threaten our survival and throw us into hell. Uh, and, and Jesus teaches that, by the way, about sexual thoughts. He says in his Sermon on the Mount, the historical Jesus probably, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're guilty of adultery, it's better yep. for you to cut off a part of your body than for your whole body to go in hell. So he, he says... But that part's know, not literal. 
Well, <laughs> but but that's the point too. If it's not literal, that was like, sarcasm. The yeah, yeah. But like the psychological is pretty horrendous. Exactly. Yeah. It's still and is. he does suggest castration. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I even mean, if you're not taking it in the literal sense, and like you're saying, taking the progressive route, he's still saying like you cannot even think of another woman, otherwise you are sinning. Like yes. what the hell? Dude. So this is this is <laughs> thought and emotional control and suppression. Uh, it's I think one of the most damaging aspects uh, within religion. It's 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 mind control. It really is mind control, and it creates an internal abuser. We internalize the abuser, who is who is God, and and it becomes a part of our minds. So uh, and and the standard is is this thing called the law, which is yeah. very oppressive too. And it it's this it's totally inhumane. It it takes moral perfection to an absurd degree. Uh, it's often very arbitrary, and our worth it makes our worth based on performance. And it's it's crushing because the whole point of the law is that it's impossible to satisfy. Uh, so it keeps us always going back to the religious system always creating the anxiety that it promises to solve driving yeah, us back yeah. like like a drug addiction over and over again like these things like prayer uh you know and good works even charity are supposed to cure us for the judgment that they deliver that yeah. they create in yeah. the first place so this is like obsessive compulsive problems uh, like hand washing when somebody has a fear about about germs a phobia they they wash their hands and that ritual of hand washing provides a temporary relief but then it reinforces the anxiety that that and only makes it worse so they keep getting stuck in that behavior uh and this is what happens when we judge ourselves when we judge our thoughts when we try to heal our p emotional pain by fighting it, it only gives more of the same energy and makes it worse. And this is what drugs do. And that's what spiritual disciplines also often do. Yeah. Because you never face the actual issues. You just mask over everything and pretend everything's okay. Yes. So this creates obsessive compulsive thinking and uh, behavior. Uh, so one way to break it, uh, I guess that I've already said, is, is non-judgment. It's practicing non-judgmental awareness and labeling these thoughts and emotions yeah. instead of fighting them, instead of resisting them. So like starting to notice, oh, like there it is again. I just had a fear of hell or I feel guilty uh, for something that I just did and that feels like a religious thing. Instead of trying to fight it, just get curious about it oh that's interesting yeah you know oh there's that voice again almost like make friends with it yeah uh well the th one thing that you haven't mentioned is uh um in christianity specifically we put such a fear on spirituality as well that i feel like it, it creates like a um you said like what kind of triggered me to that is you said make friends with like the voices in your head. But it's like in Christianity, we're taught that anytime we feel or sense or whatever, anything that isn't God, then like it's evil or like we hear voices in our head or we feel anything around us or anything like that. Like, I don't know, like, I, I don't really know where I was going with that, but, 
Um, I don't know, man. I kind of lost that. Th- I lost that train of thought. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to take that part out. <laughs> I was <laughs> going for it. Do you want to take like a, a break for a minute? Yes. Let's go for a break. Okay, cool. I'm going to pause the recording for a second. Go. So part of breaking this obsessive compulsive way of thinking and behaving is bringing non-judgment into our thoughts, into our lives, breaking out of this duality judging separation framework uh, through things like just noticing and making friends with with this God or this this these voices. And someone used the term idea monster, which I really like. Yeah, uh, you can cool. call it what you want, but it's it's funny. Here, what we're doing is we're changing our relationship to our emotions and dealing with the emotional trauma in a, in a different way where they're not our enemies. They really are our friends because when we have painful emotions, they're not good or bad. They just are, and they're trying to show us a truth. Uh, so instead of avoiding them, getting curious and saying, this is a method for me to to see into myself, into things that I are beneath my awareness that I can't normally see. And it actually does become a teacher and a friend, even the pain, uh, because then we know what to work with and what to deal with. It's like a doorway into the the deeper self. Yeah. Pain is a good thing. Um, you know, people push it off. I mean, you know, it's human reaction. You want to avoid pain. It's a survival instinct, right? But I mean, it's, it's a good teacher. And so part of what, religion tends to do is teach us train us in emotional repression Uh, a lot there are verses in the bible that frame anger envy and anxiety as either dangerous states bordering sin or actual sins yep especially envy. so what we do then when we have these emotional states we stuff them out of consciousness number one because of fear because they're sins so we're afraid of being judged we feel ashamed of them uh, because they indicate our sinful nature and we feel guilty for having them. So it's like compounded emotion on top of painful emotion that's already hard to deal with. <laughs> so there are all these layers. And what getting out of religion does is it, it helps us break out of that shame and fear so we can actually learn to face our emotions and that, that really healthy people experience the full spectrum of emotions and know how to work with them instead of trying to repress them. Okay. Yeah, it's all about, from what you're saying, it's all about just realizing all the emotions and feelings and stuff inside of you and working with all of it instead of saying, oh, that envy, that's bad, that anger, that's bad, that fear, that's bad. But it's about learning to use that and say, okay, what's making me feel that? Or, you know whatever process you go through with that. But I like that. That's cool. It's a cool thought. Yes. And additionally, it can be difficult for us when we lose God because God was oh, a super source tough. of strength. Right? It, I mean, I'm right like there the with you on that. I don't know how to process <laughs> my life right now. Yeah, that's the whole process is grieving the death of God. <laughs> And who isn't this lover and friend and all these things, even if it wasn't real. But I think something that's really powerful is the realization that God was you all along. Ooh. 
So there's you a title ha- of the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> so you Preach have a it, godlike ability to comfort yourself and to heal yourself. That because- is so true. Because like if if we get to the point of agnosticism or atheism where we never actually believed in that God, then we have to admit that all of those feelings that we generated, that was us doing that. That was our psyche creating those feelings of intense love and acceptance and understanding. That was us. Yes. So instead of losing something, you're actually gaining something. You're gaining access to a repressed part of yourself, which is called intuition often. Uh, because we were taught to to listen to these feelings and senses and the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times uh, what that was really was our intuition or our inner self, except in kind of a weird, twisted, distorted, confused way. Yeah. So, so all of these things, now we are liberated to access our intuition instead of placing it somewhere outside of us. And I think that helps with the grieving process. Well, you know, we do lose this this thing called God, but the power of God really is amazing. And it's actually you. Wow. That literally just blew my mind. (laughs) I'm not even joking right now, dude. I've been, you know, I've been struggling with, you know, like where do I go from here for a while now? You know, like I'm at a point right now where I, I have to admit that most of my thoughts about God line up with atheism. I cannot deny that. There's a part of me that still wants to hold on to theism in some in some sense of, you know, closure or comfort or something of that aspect. But, you know, if I'm looking at my thoughts of God in the Bible and hell and heaven and divinity and Jesus and all of that, I pretty much line up with atheism. So being being able to process all of that you know it's been a journey and it's been something that i've been working through but i mean this conversation alone especially that statement you just made man like that literally blew my mind i've never even thought about that aspect before like i really was experiencing that you know so it was happening inside of me somewhere that's crazy it's crazy it is crazy it is crazy and and this is like I mean, religion tends to demonize the self and nature, uh, and 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 that's kind of a power grab. But we really are—I mean, it calls worshiping other things idolatry, and it condemns nature worship. But if anything's natural and if anything's sensible, it is this kind of realization of the divinity of ourselves and all that is— and our connectedness to it, and that all this God stuff actually exists in ourself and in connection to the rest of nature and in the realization of that. So there's a lot there. Um, but I'd also like to address, well, let's see here, um, anxiety. Yes. So this is a huge, huge issue. And one of the things people deal with usually right away when they're leaving religion and after they left is hellfire PTSD. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but it's brutal. It, yep. I mean, hell is it's such an, a maniacal doctrine. And people come to me and I experience this having nightmare, vivid nightmares of hell and just being terrified that 
they're not really sure if it's real anymore and knowing it kind of intellectually but still wondering if it's real i mean if i were to if i were to reach deep down into my psyche and pull out the things that make me want to believe in god more than anything even though i don't even believe in hell anymore it would probably be hell <laughs> Just yes. because of that fear aspect of it. Like, what if it is real? What if what if I am being completely wrong? What if everything I'm doing right now, doing this podcasting, you know, not following God anymore, like what, what, everything I'm doing right now, what if it is wrong to the core, you know? And there, that, there's that fear in which I, I don't, it's not a suppression of that. I generally don't really think about that much, but when I do, the thought does come to my mind, you know, what if it is real? So, exactly, and there are a number of different strategies for dealing with this this horrible idea, and one of, one of the things that comes to mind is it's so wrong, it can't possibly be real. Yeah. Like, th- this thing is, is the ultimate most sadistic diabolical idea and it's for me it's laughable at this point like it's kind of hilarious and i i kind of help to relate to it differently by making a joke out of it like you're telling me that your vision for the best case scenario of humanity which is the biblical vision is that almost everyone gets tortured forever in the most right. horrible way and like this is the being we should worship like what a joke yeah and yeah yeah i actually believe this like this is just <laughs> It's so evil and ridiculous. It's absurd and kind of hilarious on some level. Yeah, not it's only just like how yeah. can this possibly be justice? This is the exact opposite of of justice. Literally, it's the exact opposite of love and justice. Exactly, to an extreme. That's and that's the where definition of the idea of hell. It's 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 the epitome of evil and the immortalization of evil. So like, there's that level where I'm just like, I know it can't possibly be true because it's so demented and really kind of hilarious uh so and there is the intellectual understanding that i think helps a lot which i explain kind of the history of the development of the idea of hell as a we know how it exists like it it didn't exist throughout the old testament it came into being and was solidified in the intertestamental period and because people wanted revenge that's why it's there so like we know how it was that it was invented how it was invented, why it was invented. We know what it does. It, well, it's the same reason that the Jews wanted a warlord messiah. Exactly. It's the same thing. And so with the idea of hell, though, people will still suffer from it, even though they know it, that it doesn't make intellectual sense. And this is part of how phobias work. This is part of yeah. how indoctrination works. Is It take can take a while for our emotions to take to catch up to what we already know in our intellect Uh, because there's this behavioral association that's been built in the brain and in our minds that when we think this thought we've been trained to react with fear so this this thought has been bundled with the emotion of fear uh, neurologically and behaviorally so that tends to just happen automatically almost and so understanding that like we might have this fear, but it's almost like a scary nightmare that you have when you're a kid and you now realize isn't real. 
You know, I, I used to freak out when I was a kid and I had scary nightmares. And now if I have them, I kind of wake up and I can laugh a little bit about it and be like, oh, that was yeah. just a dream. And so it's it's kind of like that with hell. Uh, just, just knowing that, you know, it's going to take time sometimes, but that doesn't mean you're not better. It doesn't mean you don't believe it. Uh, there is that emotional uh, pattern. This thing all fades with almost everyone that I talk to. Yeah. It's a ridiculously abusive idea. And uh, and what's sad to me about it is that how much fear it places people who are in religion. Like people who are in religion are suffering so much. And we don't often talk about this because we suffer and we came out of it. But like everyone who believes in hell is terrified by it, even if they're unconscious of it, because you have to be to believe in it. Yeah. Uh, so it, it just drives the most extreme kind of behavior um, because it's, it's so, it's so agonizing. No, like I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that one. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, hell is, it's, it's a scary concept if it's realistic, but I've come to the conclusion that if hell is real, that is not the, the God who created that hell is not one that I want to follow. Like the God who created a world threw everyone into it and, told them that you know you are inherently evil you are going to you are destined for destruction and to be tortured forever if you do not love me first of all it's narcissistic second of all i mean it's you know egotistical so you know and just the concept of hell it the concept of hell like if 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 i have an idea of what is just that does not match up to this idea of God, how can this God be just? How can he be the God of justice? And my question is, I use this equation, um, how can a finite amount of sin, like it doesn't matter like if someone is the worst person that could ever exist in the world, a freaking mass murder or whatever, how can a finite amount of sin merit an infinite amount of destruction much less someone like gandhi who his literally only sin was not believing in jesus or someone who went to the peace corps right and went and died in another country uh from a disease or something like that but didn't believe in jesus why do these people deserve hell simply because they did not accept god when someone can be the worst person in the world and in the last moment, give their life to God and be in heaven forever. Look, the so equation does not of, make sense. In this kind of a system, the only person who's guilty of sin is the one who designed the oppressive system, and that's God. Yeah. All right. The, this is the person who created the whole mechanism of torture and sin and all of that. I mean, come on. We know better. In a court of law, we wouldn't blame the the victim in this scenario. We would say... We, we wouldn't blame the henchman so much as the person who hired him and sent him to carry yeah. out the crime, right? He gets the worst punishment. So this is, this is just not reality. It's just not real. It's not the way anything works except for some kind of somebody's twisted fantasy of revenge. That's what it is. So, but religious fundamentalism, it... It, uh, it creates anxiety to drive religious devotion, to inspire religious devotion. So this system creates a sense of unsafety, 
uh, to keep people committed to it. So our mind is an unsafe place to live. That's the most unsafe place because that's where we can have thoughts that can lead us astray. People who aren't believers are unsafe because they can cause us to fall into temptation. A secular society and education is unsafe because it can cause us to question the religion. The uh-huh. spirit monsters or demons are unsafe. Uh, divine judgment, the oh, rapture, God, yeah. internal insecurity, all these things. So what the system does is, I mean, there's unsafety in the universe. We've acknowledged that, right? Things happen. But it so exaggerates it uh, to a ridiculous proportion and and even creates false dangers where we're just constantly anxious. Yeah, let's uh, not get started on, on on charismania. I could I could go all night oh, about right. chasing demons around your house and shit yeah, like that. So so this is one of the nice things, but I find people are often chronically anxious, and I know yeah. I was coming out of this, and it can create anxiety disorders. These issues are so yeah, and I think. A nice thing is is beginning to realize that the universe is actually a much safer place than the vision created in fundamentalism and that most of the anxieties we deal with on a day-to-day basis are not real threats. They're imagined or they're worries because most of the time we're not facing being eaten by a jaguar anymore. It's most of the stress we go through is, is, is thoughts in our heads. Yeah. Uh, and and not real things, but 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 this fundamentalism creates all these scary things that aren't even real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I remember having prayer meetings where we literally were like, yeah. I, what what'd you say the denomination of the church your dad started was? It's Assemblies of God Pentecostal. Oh, okay. So you know all about tongues and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I remember praying and speaking in tongues. We were non-denominational, but we were, uh, we were out there, man. And I remember like running around the house chasing demons. I remember praying over people, saying that demons got cast out. And look, dude, I remember like, and and it's crazy how much we can build this up in our psyche. I remember nights where I would stay up sitting in my bed just reading my Bible and praying all night because I thought that my upstairs neighbor had a Ouija board and he was summoning demons to his apartment. (laughs) Like, is that a healthy mindset to be in? No. Yeah. Not at all. I mean, look, if anyone's a demon, it's the Holy Spirit, honestly, who's terrorizing and policing our thoughts and demanding slavish obedience and threatening us all the time. (laughs) I mean, I'd rather have a demon than that deity in my brain. Yeah. But like, so... I At least a demon that... would lie to me and help me feel safe. Like, I'm not <laughs> going to burn in hell forever. <laughs> so, like, uh, so cal- calming down this anxiety, a lot of it is yeah. just realizing the absurdity of these doctrines and uh, and starting to create space for ourselves and 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 create, cultivate a sense of, of safety uh, and, uh-huh. and start to explore the world and realize that people are a lot less scary than we had thought they were. Exactly. And uh, that taking risks is, is – there are consequences in life, but we're not risking our eternal welfare or, or things like that. So, And, and I would the, say for someone coming out of specifically a situation like myself, I don't know how much um, you were into – 
<clears throat> the whole like spiritual side of Christianity, but someone who came out of some a situation like that where you were in a very charismatic church per se, um, I I would say you know get away from all that for a while. I where I'm at right now, I make it an effort to be as as least spiritual as possible. I don't I don't even hardly pray at all. You know, I don't think about the Holy Spirit or you know any of that stuff like what I look at right now is more scientific. When I when I think about whether I believe in God or not, the things that make me align more with atheism are the philosophical and scientific viewpoints that make sense in that categorization. Because, you know, take all the other stuff out of the equation, God, you know, essentially doesn't really make that much sense. I mean, and, and, you know, for anyone who's listening who, you know, I'm not saying don't believe in God. I'm just saying when I'm looking at things scientifically and realistically, you know, because when I'm looking at what's actually observable and what's actually researchable and all these other things, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, God really doesn't make that much sense in this world. The idea of God as put forth in the Judeo-Christian worldview has been invalidated on almost every single level. Invalidated yeah. on a psychological level, on a historical level, on a scientific level. Uh, the The reason that people tend to cling to it is, I think, tradition. Because it's so yeah. much to lose uh, when, to acknowledge that we were, we were wrong and then to give it all up. But uh, I, I think we really have to grapple with that. Is it worth preserving a tradition by by becoming, say, liberal or progressive um, that continues to perpetrate ideas that are erroneous and uh, and texts that that promote these kinds of oppressions and they'll continue to propagate so long as they're supported or even put into a metaphorical way. Metaphors still embrace the realities that they represent. Uh, so there, that's a whole other issue there. Um, there's one last thing I'd like to mention in terms uh -huh. of emotions, and that is narcissism. Narcissism. This is something I'm just starting to study. But so God is is a narcissist. God is a classic narcissist. It's everything is about God and establishing his ego. Yeah. It's an ego raid. And one of the narcissism is one of the biggest issues that people struggle with when they leave religion. And we tend to make this into like a really bad thing, but it's actually something everyone struggles with. And it's a really painful condition. What it is is that uh, we experience feel, feeling insufficient or wounded or rejected. And so we try to, uh, through a sense of superiority and comparison and, and specialness, we're, we're trying to fill that, that gap of feeling rejected or lonely or that fear and that original wounding. Um, so that's really what narcissism reflects, a kind of a sense of disconnection and loneliness and rejection. I talked about that injured self-relationship and 
the narcissistic wound happens through original sin. We're told that we're bad, uh, that we're insufficient and not good enough in our nature. So what do we try to do? We try to be better. We try to be superior. Uh, so it, it, there's the superior race, the chosen people, the people of God. And now you become these high priests, uh, people on a mission to save the world. And there's all this narcissistic vision. Uh, so it, it simultaneously destroys your ego and then it puffs it up at the same time. And yeah. that's kind of the way a narcissistic system works. Uh, and so we start thinking that we're better than other people and judging them. Um, and, and I've seen this in myself all the time, comparing myself to other people, like feeling better or like, because I'm right and I know more than you and you're wrong and I'm trying to prove you wrong and I'm getting an ego rise out of that. Uh, and a lot of that comes from the religion, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we derive that. I mean, if the God you follow is, you know, a narcissist, then why would that not transfer to yourself? So it's it's really nice to learn humility, uh, which is ironic because religion often <laughs> teaches says that. <laughs> that it teaches it. But humility is is a much less painful way to live, is a realizing my ordinariness. I'm just an ordinary human being like everybody else. And that's where I find my connection and my specialness, recognizing just I'm just a flawed human being. I have hopes and dreams and longings like everyone else. And because of this, I don't need to compare myself uh, or try to be better than other people. I actually get to learn and grow. And it's like it's nice to be wrong or to be open because then I can learn. And uh, it's a really painful what narcissistic state of being is, is. It's like you're always trying to prove yourself so you can gain acceptance and love. And I think the point is, is that, you know, as you are as flawed and with issues and with beauties is, is, is always good enough. Yeah, well, the issue is you have with um, and I'll make this point quick. The issue that you have with Christianity and with church and stuff is that they teach you come as you are, but then uh, but then you have to change. Come as you are until you accept Jesus, and then you can't be like this anymore. You can't be like that anymore. You have to dress this way, talk this way, act this way, feel this way, and then, then God loves you. But, I mean, really what it comes down to is, like you said, we have to be okay with who we are, you know? And if anyone gets anything out of this episode few episodes this uh series if you would say it's that i mean we have to learn to be okay with who we are we have to deal with this anger this frustration yes we got hurt by church we don't know what's going on in our mind we have to like react to everything that's happening now but there's healthy ways to do that um and i want to thank you for being on um and giving us some good information and i look forward to really talking with you in the future and having some some further episodes about this and other stuff because you know i really think deconstruction is good but where do we go from there and i'm not even talking reconstruction you know if 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 that's what if that's the avenue you come to where you know you've deconstructed what's bad in your faith and you want to reconstruct what's good kudos to you that's awesome but if you get to the point where you've deconstructed everything and now what the hell do you do you know th there's other coping mechanisms for that as well so 
Yes. So what this is about, in my vision, is self-actualization. And that reaches beyond trauma, and it, it steps outside of trauma uh, and beyond healing. It's, it's not just about getting better. It's about being our highest and best selves and living in full alignment and integrity and being the superhumans, or, which ordinary humans, that we are, the, the divine free beings. Now that we have our freedom, how do we use that, that awesome freedom and power? And so um, I love to talk about these things. I also uh, talk about spirituality, which I think is the real so power of healing and self-actualization and okay. reframing that sexual healing and and rebuilding uh, your identity and career and life and community. Uh, I also, I'm giving a, a talk uh, this next week on reclaiming sexuality from religion, and I'm also going to be offering more workshops in the future on healing religious trauma and spirituality. Uh, so if, if, if anyone wants to have me come speak or put on a workshop or anything like that, I'm happy to do that. And really, I'm interested in seeing a, a movement of healers, uh, and I'm currently working on research uh, for a thesis, developing that, and hopefully making a training program for helping professionals, clergy, and uh, therapists to learn how to work through these issues, which is uh, going to definitely require some funding. So if you're interested in, in that kind of a movement and investing in whatever kind of a way or learning about it yourself, then uh, reach out to me. Okay. Do you have a uh, website or anything? Yes, it's lifeafterdogma.org. That's my website and my blog. You can find other interviews and resources on that. And you can find me on Facebook, or Andrew Jasko, or Twitter as well. Perfect. Well, uh, until we have you on again, sir, this was a very good conversation. And I think that people will really enjoy this. And I look forward to talking to you again. Great. I do too. All righty. Until next time, I'll see you. Hello, pilgrims and prodigals. Thank you again for listening to this episode. And for anyone who has supported us throughout the entirety of this show, special shout out to you. Uh, I know we have a lot of guys who have been listening and ladies from day one, and we really appreciate that. Like I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, we have a lot of changes that are coming for the future. Some things we're really excited to announce, some things that are kind of bittersweet to announce, but we'll get there when we get there. Either way, I'm extremely thankful for the support that we've had in this uh, podcast. Regardless of where it goes in the future, regardless of who's on it in the future, um, hint, hint, <laughs> I, it's been really fun for me. It's been a great time. And we'll get into that on the next episode as we dig into a lot of these big changes that are, that are occurring. But until next time... Go to our Facebook, uh, follow us, get in the group. You know, d we just, we don't want followers. We want people who can get involved, people who we can, uh, who can benefit from, from everything that, that Pilgrims of Prodigals is, that community. So, so until next time, we love you and peace off. <laughs>